Well, let's turn now in our Bibles to the book of Romans. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 15 this morning, verses 8 to 13. And something that we don't think about very often, but that is helpful for us to think about, is that for most of us, and probably all of us, before we were adopted into God's family, we were more like the Canaanites and the Amalekites than we were children of Abraham. We were the uncircumcised Philistines, as it were. We were the outsiders with no claim on God's promises. We were Gentiles, to use the word the New Testament often uses. Unless you uh, are ethnically Jewish, right? you had no claim on God's promises. You were not a part of God's chosen nation. And Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians chapter 2, when he, he tells us, he says, Therefore remember, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is by the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul says, remember that about yourselves. Remember who you were. Remember not only that you were lost. Remember not only that you were dead in sin. Remember not only that you were uh, you know, sinners in need of salvation. Remember also that you were Gentiles. You had no claims on God. No claims on the promises of God. You were aliens. You were strangers. You were outsiders. And you need to remember that so that you will appreciate as fully as possible what is true of you now. He goes on to say, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now Paul reminds us of these things because when we forget them or ignore them, we lose sight of how great God's mercy is toward us. We lose some of the wonder of our salvation. We flatten out the story of Scripture, and we might even begin to think that we are at the center of God's story. But the central events of salvation, they took place on the other side of the ocean and a sea way over there. Right When Jesus died and rose, when he was born of a virgin and came down to earth and lived a perfect life and was crucified on the cross and rose again on the third day, those things happened in Israel. Those things happened among God's chosen people. In fulfillment of promises that God had made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the fact that those events, in fulfillment of those promises mean our salvation 
is mercy. That's Paul's point in Romans 15, verses 8 to 13. Let's look at those together. Let me read them for us. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now, this section of Scripture is Paul's conclusion to what he has been saying in chapter 14 and chapter 15 about why the church should be united despite differences of opinion and different convictions. All throughout chapter 14 and chapter 15, Paul has been dealing with these differences among the church in Rome, some who believed it was okay for them to eat meat and some who thought it wasn't and ate only vegetables, some who thought they needed to observe certain days and treat them differently and others who thought they could treat every day the same. And Paul has been saying, don't judge one another over those things. Don't despise one another over those things. Instead, be united with one another. Welcome one another, he said in verse 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And part of what he's doing now is reminding us how God has welcomed us. How Christ has welcomed us. What God has done for us so that we are reminded how we should treat one another. And so here's what he says. First of all, he says that in Christ's coming, God kept his promises to the fathers. The, the word used here is the patriarchs. That's just a big word for the, for the fathers. And the fathers of Israel are, of course, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But the first thing we want to notice is he says that Christ became a servant. Christ became a servant. And we saw this recently in our uh, set of Easter sermons, Good Friday or, or Palm Sunday and Easter sermons, that Christ, though he was in the form of God, right, before he was born, before he became a man, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He came to serve. He humbled himself to serve. And Paul is reminding this church in Rome that is divided and sort of looking down their noses at each other. And he's saying, remember how Jesus came among us and why he came among us. He didn't come and look down his nose at us. He came to serve us. He came as a servant. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If the 
Son of Man Himself, the Son of God who took on flesh, if He came to serve, then surely we also ought to serve one another. He says He came as a servant, or He became a servant to the circumcised. That means He came primarily to serve the Jews. One of the things that marked off the Jewish people was the covenant of circumcision that God had given to Abraham. And So when He says He came as a servant to the circumcised, He means Jesus came primarily to the Jews. And when we read the Gospel stories, this is really plain. Right? Mary was a Jew. Joseph was a Jew. Jesus was born among the Jews. He lived among the Jews. We see Him in the Gospel of Luke as a young boy spending time in the temple. We see Him teaching among the Jewish people. All throughout His ministry, He is ministering primarily to the Jews. And so He came as a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews. Why? To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So Paul tells us how he came as a servant. He tells us who he came to, the circumcised. And then he tells us why he came. He came to confirm God's promises. He came to show that God is faithful, that God is true, that God is trustworthy. Now, what promises exactly was Jesus coming to confirm? What promises did God make to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that Jesus' coming fulfills? Well, the promises that God made to Abraham are the same promises that Isaac got, the same promises that Jacob got. They were passed down from one generation to the next. And they can be summarized like this. God promised Abraham land, right, the land of Canaan for starters. He promised Abraham offspring. right? Your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore or as the stars in the heaven. And he promised Abraham blessing. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great, and I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. Now, how does Jesus' coming fulfill the promise and show that God is keeping the promise of land and offspring and blessing? Well, not quite in the ways that people probably expected. Jesus did not come to fulfill the promise of the land of Canaan for the descendants of Abraham by kicking out the Romans and and setting Israel, the land of Israel, free from Roman occupation. He didn't do that. That's probably what some people thought he was doing when he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. Uh, They probably thought, all right, finally the king is coming, and soon he's going to draw that sword, and Rome is going to be out of here, and this land is going to be ours again. But that's not what he did. Instead, when he came and taught people what it meant to follow him, right, when he said, repent and believe, right, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, one of the first things he said was, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Not just Canaan, the earth. Those who humble themselves and follow me, in other words, Jesus was saying, I will give them the inheritance promised to Abraham, and it won't just be the land of Canaan, it will be the world. 
Paul makes the same point in the book of Romans earlier. In Romans chapter 4, he said the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And he goes on to say that this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, that would be the Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So there's a hint of how the second promise is fulfilled, the promise of numerous offspring. It's not just that the nation of Israel would multiply and be numerous, but that offspring for Abraham would come even from among the Gentiles. This is one of Paul's main points in Galatians chapter 3, that those who believe like Abraham believed are the sons of Abraham. This is why we uh, sing that song, or many of us did when we were kids, you know, about being uh, children of Abraham. You know, uh, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Well, why am I a son of Abraham? And why is that a reason for me to give thanks? I'm a son of Abraham, not because I'm descended from Abraham, but because I believe like Abraham believed. And because I believe like Abraham believed, I get the same blessing that Abraham received And I become an heir of the promises made to Abraham along with Abraham because the promises are given to all who have faith in Christ. And that's the next point. The third promise was the promise of blessing. Not only that Abraham would be blessed and his offspring would be blessed, but that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. Paul even goes so far as to say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, that the scripture... For seeing that God would justify, that is, forgive and count righteous, justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Paul says that promise to Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 12, that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, that that was the Bible preaching the gospel to Abraham. Saying to Abraham, here's how God is going to save Not just you and your family, but people from all over the earth. Just as Abraham later would believe and would be counted righteous, Genesis 15, 6 says, so Paul says all of us who believe, like Abraham believed, are counted righteous, receive forgiveness of sin, and are reconciled to God. So those three promises of land and offspring and blessing were confirmed and fulfilled in the coming of Jesus because through Jesus, everyone who believes becomes an offspring of Abraham and receives the blessing that Abraham was promised and will one day receive the inheritance not just of Canaan, but of the whole earth when we dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. So Paul is saying that one of the many reasons why the coming of Christ was so important, why it matters, is that he fulfills God's promises and demonstrates once again that God is faithful, that God's word is true, that we can trust him to do what he says. And that is no small thing. 
But there's another reason why Christ became a servant to the circumcised, Paul says. And we see that in verse 9. It was not only to show God's truthfulness and to confirm God's promises, but it was also in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Remember, Jesus came primarily to the Jews. He became a servant to the circumcised, Paul just said. But he came to the Jews with a purpose for the Gentiles. And we see hints of this throughout the gospel stories. We see, for example, uh, a Roman centurion. He's not a Jew, he's a Gentile. A Roman centurion who believed that Jesus could heal. And Jesus said, I've not even seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. In fact, I'll tell you something else. I'm paraphrasing here, right? Jesus said, you're going to be surprised when one day people from east and west are coming and reclining at table with Abraham and some of the sons of the kingdom aren't there but are in the outer darkness. In other words, Jesus was saying, there are going to be some Gentiles like this Roman centurion who trust me who are going to share in the kingdom with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They're going to be sitting down there with the patriarchs, enjoying the promises that God made to them. And some of you who think you're going to be there because you're offspring of Abraham, you're not going to be there because you don't trust me like this Gentile does. There was an incident where a Gentile woman came to Jesus asking for healing for her daughter. And Jesus sort of pushed back and said, well, I, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I didn't, I didn't come for the Gentiles. And the, the Gentile woman acknowledged that. She didn't say, no, 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 you have to come equally for me. She didn't have any claim on him. But her response was, yes, but even the dogs eat some of the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And Jesus healed her daughter. Later, Jesus would say, if we didn't pick up the hints, in John chapter 10, he would say in verse 16, he he said to the Jews, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. In other words, he told the Jews, I didn't come only for you. I came first to you. I came primarily to you, but I didn't come only for you. I've got other sheep outside of Israel, outside of this fold. And they're going to follow me too. And they're going to believe me. And I'm going to put you all together. You're going to be one flock, one church, one body under one shepherd. And that one saying of Jesus is the the seed of the book of Acts and Romans and Galatians where Paul explains and Luke records how the gospel spread not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but also to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. How not only Jews were saved and reconciled and Receive the promises made to Abraham, but so did Gentiles. And that's why, as, 
as others have pointed out, in, in these problems in Romans 14 and 15, they're probably Jew-Gentile problems. They're probably Jews saying, we've still got to keep the Sabbath, and Gentiles saying, we've never kept the Sabbath, but we believe in Jesus. And Jews saying, we can't eat that meat. And Gentiles saying, we've been eating this meat our whole lives. Jesus didn't say anything about us not being able to eat that meat, so we're going to keep eating that meat. And Paul's saying, look, Jew, Gentile, strong wheat, you know, there's probably some crossover, but mainly Jew, Gentile believers who are disagreeing over these practices, what you're supposed to do, don't worry about it. Those things don't matter anymore. Those things ought not to divide you. Each one of you be fully convinced. Each one of you do what you feel like you need to do to honor the Lord. But don't think that these Gentiles who are eating meat and not observing the Sabbath are somehow not honoring Jesus. And you Gentiles who are looking over at these Jews saying, why are you still keeping the Sabbath? And why why don't you eat pork? Or whatever, you know. Leave, Leave them alone too. They've trusted in the Messiah. They believe the gospel. They've been doing those things for a long time. That's okay if they keep doing some of those things. What you need to remember is that Jesus came to serve. And he has served you both. He has served the Gentiles, excuse me, the, the Jews, by fulfilling the promises made to their fathers. And he has served the Gentiles by bringing those promises to pass, not only for the Jews, but for the benefit of the Gentiles too. He has shown mercy to you also. And then he gives a string of quotations to explain or to support this inclusion of the Gentiles. And they kind of come from all over. The first one comes from Psalm 18. The second one comes from Deuteronomy 32. The third one comes from Psalm 117. And the fourth one comes from Isaiah chapter 11. And all of them have something to do with the Gentiles, right? The first one from Psalm 18, this is David singing, celebrating God's deliverance of David from his enemies. And David says, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And then in verse 10, this comes again from Deuteronomy 32, where it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now, we might wonder why would the Gentiles want to rejoice with Israel? Especially in the Old Testament. Because when we read the Old Testament, a lot of times the defeat of the Gentiles is the reason why Israel is rejoicing. Right? Because the Gentiles are the enemies. So why are the Gentiles su- supposed to rejoice with the nation of Israel? Well, sort of the short version uh, is this. As God is faithful to Israel, so His promises will eventually extend to the Gentiles. Again, we see hints of this even in the Old Testament. When God brought Israel into the promised land, 
that was not a great day for most of the Gentiles, right? Because the Gentiles were living in that land. And the nation of Israel came in, and God knocked down the wall around Jericho, and God drove out the Canaanites and the Amorites and all those ites we read about in the Old Testament, right? So why should the Gentiles be rejoicing in God's faithfulness to Israel when God's faithfulness to Israel in that moment means judgment on the Gentiles? Well, it didn't mean judgment for all of the Gentiles. Remember Rahab? Rahab had heard about what God had done for Israel. And when the spies came into the land to spy out the land, she helped them, she hid them, she sided with them. And in siding with them, she sided with the God of Israel. And because she sided with the God of Israel, she came under the protection of the God of Israel. Same thing happened to Ruth. Right? When Ruth married into a Jewish family, right, became Naomi's daughter-in-law there in Moab, and then Naomi returned to Jerusalem, Ruth went with her. Naomi tried to get her to stay in Moab, but Ruth came back with Naomi to Israel, and Boaz, whom she would eventually marry, recognized that Ruth had taken shelter under the wing of the God of Israel. And she, she told Naomi, your God is going to be my God now. I, I am identifying with you, with your people, and with your God. And so as God blessed his people, God blessed Ruth too, though she was a Gentile. And those were just the beginning of what the Old Testament hints about all over the place that finally comes to fulfillment in the New Testament that Paul is reminding us of here is that as God fulfills His promise to the Jews, the Gentiles get the blessings too. God's God's grace and faithfulness to the Jews spills over into mercy to all the nations. So that in the book of Revelation, Jesus can be worshipped because he has ransomed people for God by his death from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So what Paul wants us to do as we read these verses is he wants us to remember that we didn't have to be here. God didn't owe anything to us. He he was not in our debt. He had no obligation to us. But what he has done is he has showered us with mercy. He has included us by grace. And so like these passages say, we should rejoice with his people because now we are his people. And part of why we get to be His people is because He was faithful to the promises He made to His people. And now, like the quote in verse 12 says, in Him will the Gentiles hope. Now our hope is in Him, though before we had no hope at all. Remember Paul said in Ephesians 2 that before Christ saved us, we were without God and we were without hope. But because 
Jesus came in fulfillment to those promises and came in mercy for us, we get to hope in Him as well. And that's what Paul turns to in the last verse, verse 13, where he brings this section to a close. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I just want you to pause for just a moment and think about that first phrase. May the God of hope. When we think about God, there are a lot of things probably that come to your mind first. Maybe when you think about God, the first thing you think is God of law, God of rules, God of judgment, God of criticism, right? God does judge. God did give the law. But what does God tell us about himself when he reveals himself to us? What is the, when he shows himself to Moses on the mountain, what's the first thing God says about himself? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Oftentimes, the way we think about God is not the way God wants us to think about Him. Think about what Paul tells us to think about God here. To think about God as the God of hope. He is both the God who gives hope and is the reason for our hope, the one we hope in. Hope in Scripture is not a wish. Hope in the Bible most often refers to a confident expectation. It's confident faith about the future. What God is going to do, what God has promised to do, I am certain that He will do. And that is my hope. We can hope in Him because He has proven Himself trustworthy and faithful. And we have hope because of who he is and what he's done and what he's promised. And so God, or so Paul prays, may the God of hope, the God who gives hope, the God in whom is your hope, the God you're hoping in, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And something else that we may not often think about when we think about God. God is the one who fills us with joy. God is the one who gives peace. Remember Paul said earlier that having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God because our sins have been forgiven through Jesus' death and now we're no longer enemies of God. We have become friends of God. We have been reconciled to God. We have peace. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Paul wants us to come to the end of this section of Scripture full of hope. And he knows that's something only God can do in us, that's something that the Holy Spirit brings about, that's something that the Holy Spirit empowers. But his prayer, as he comes to the end of this section of Scripture, is that the Spirit of God would cause us 
to abound in hope. That as we look back at how God kept His promises to send His Son and to bless His people and to extend that blessing to the nations, that we would look forward with hope to the fulfillment of all that God has promised about the future. Paul tells us, reminds us one of those promises in Romans chapter 8, when he says that not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What he's talking about there is the the resurrection of our bodies. The glorification, the transformation of our bodies that's going to take place when Jesus returns. Paul says that is part of our hope. We haven't received it yet. We haven't seen it yet. But we hope for it. We hope in it. We wait for the fulfillment of that promise with confidence. So Paul wants us to remember, wants us to know that God is a God of both hope and mercy. He did not have to include us. He did not have to save us. He did not owe us anything. But not only has He shown us mercy, He has given us hope. Hope not merely for today or for tomorrow, but for eternity. Hope beyond the grave. Hope of full redemption and life in His presence forever. Let's pray.